Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is an effort where we go to all our reporters, our editors, and our news anchors to find out what stories we feel matter most of the past week. Stories likely you might have missed, or maybe you only got a headline or want more depth to the story. This is a chance for you to find it. I'm Mark Christopher. Let's get right to it. As some of the stories we're going to share, word of job cuts at Boeing, and questions from a U.S. senator from Washington State about the Southwest Airlines holiday meltdown, and questions asked about government red tape in Washington's mental health crisis. Also, major reaction to President Joe Biden's State of the Union address. Just some of the stories we're going to recover here for you to get all caught up. Let's get right to our first story. Boeing cutting thousands of office jobs this year as it seeks a leaner operation. What we know so far? A Boeing spokesperson tells Northwest News Radio the company expects to reduce its human resources and finance workforce this year by about 2,000 through a combination of attrition and layoffs. The spokesperson says no one yet has been notified they've been laid off and there is no word of specific local impact. Boeing Chief Executive Dave Calhoun spoke generally during a recent earnings report about achieving a leaner workforce. We're embedding lean across our operations to drive productivity ultimately to achieve the kinds of targets that we've set out. Those targets include ramping up local production of 737 MAX jets to more than 50 a month, up from the current 30. To that end, Boeing points out, it hired 15,000 in engineering and manufacturing last year and plans to hire another 10,000 in those sectors this year. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. A top Southwest Airlines executive takes the hot seat in a U.S. Senate committee to answer questions about the airline's colossal failure during the Christmas holiday. Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee Chair Democrat Maria Cantwell of Washington led the questioning, asking Southwest's Chief Operating Officer Andrew Watterson point-blank, Do you understand the public's frustration with this? Watterson apologized and promised that its technology will be updated this week and that it will invest more than a billion dollars in operations upgrades. Southwest's Pilots Union President Captain Casey Murray told the committee the failure came despite several union warnings. When there is a disruption, it takes Southwest much longer to recover. It's a process and how they program that IT and how they connect pilots to airplanes and flight attendants, which is what causes the ongoing execution problems. That is something that can be done relatively quickly. A representative for an airline trade group says a combination of public and private investments, including major improvements at the FAA, are also needed. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. A Seattle-based company seems to be in Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders crosshairs. Kathy O'Shea now explains this one. As Sanders settles into his new role as chairman of the Senate committee overseeing health and labor issues, he says Starbucks interim CEO Howard Schultz is his first target over his company's anti-unionization efforts. Sanders and the 10 other Democrats on the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee are demanding that Schultz testify at a March 9th hearing on his company's compliance with federal labor laws. Starbucks Spokesman Andrew Troll says the company is reviewing the letter but did not say whether Schultz will appear. Sanders says he's willing to subpoena Schultz to force him to appear. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. We told you this week about Microsoft's new artificial intelligence chat box search engine. And then we asked, how well does it work? It was a story we found in the Washington Post. Jeff Poljula providing the questions on this. First off, for those who don't know, what exactly is a chatbot? Folks may have heard some of the buzz in the last couple of months about these artificial intelligence programs that have the ability to write in English that sounds like it maybe came from a human. You can ask it all kinds of questions and it'll write you kind of an essay about it. And so the race has been on to figure out 
who can integrate this artificial intelligence technology into searches so that you can maybe investigate things that are a little more complicated um, than you can normally get the answer to just by looking at you know, a whole world of links to other websites. So how reliable and accurate are these chatbots? So um, yesterday, uh, Microsoft uh, announced that they made a deal with the company behind one of the most buzzy of these. Uh, it's called OpenAI, and their system is called ChatGPT. They have integrated it into uh, a new version of its Bing search engine. So the idea is that uh, when you go to the Bing box there, you instead of just typing find a television, you can type a whole sentence. I'd like a television that is, uh, has a large screen, doesn't cost very much, and put in a whole bunch of other things, and it will do the work. The artificial intelligence will do the work for you. When I tested this at the Microsoft event yesterday, it was um, useful in some senses and not so useful in others. One problem is that the chatbot is really wordy. And so as an assistant, it oftentimes uh, would give paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of answers to things that I really wanted, just kind of a one-word answer. What is the best television that costs under $250, for example? And so that was one problem. Another challenge that came up is this artificial intelligence technology has a little bit of a problem with sometimes kind of making up its own answers. It can kind of just start to imagine things that maybe don't really even exist. And that's going to be really worrisome, I think, for people when they're searching for things. Can they really trust whether what they're saying is true? Well, certainly misinformation and disinformation has been a problem generated by human beings over the last several years, but now generated by AI. And in fact, you write about this AI creating a conspiracy with Tom Hanks and Watergate. What's going on there? Yeah, so as part of the tests, uh, I just wanted to see, um, you know, could I lead the AI into believing something that isn't true? And uh, unfortunately, I was able to do that with Bing. So I said, I asked the, the, the chatbot, what role did Tom Hanks play in, in the Watergate uh, controversy? Uh, and its response was, initially, Tom Hanks played no role in it. But then it kept going. And then it started to imagine that there was some conspiracy theory out there that Tom Hanks had played a role in, in Watergate. And it went on about how, like, where this conspiracy came from and how it had been, been debunked by outlets, including my own, The Washington Post. I was just like, where on earth did all of this come from? And this is one of the known challenges with this technology. It has the um, it sort of freestyles and can imagine things that don't necessarily really exist. So um, definitely it's one of the issues that they're going to have to work on um, as, as they try to get people to trust this as a place to get answers. So it's not really ready for prime time just yet. I would say they've got their work ahead of them. If folks want to try this right now, you have to sign up for a special beta program from Microsoft. You have to go to bing.com slash new Sign up for it with your Microsoft account, and it will also only work for right now in your um, in the Microsoft Edge web browser. That said, this kind of technology is definitely coming to everyone. Jeffrey Fowler from the Washington Post with Northwest News Radio's Jeff Poljula. Washington's independent living homes for seniors and the State Department of Revenue are at odds over tax on meals. Seniors who live in independent facility group homes call it age discrimination, that their meals are taxed by the state, while seniors in assisted living don't pay a meal tax. Skagit Valley Herald reports Cascade Living Group, which operates seven senior living facilities in the area, has refused to pay taxes on their residents' meals. They say the State Department of Revenue simply changed the law out of the blue. There was a public hearing last week on a bill that would lift this meal tax. 
several residents from Mountain Glen Retirement and Assisted Living attended. Resident Lee Bravener. We go into these facilities in a dining room. It's part of our home. It's our dining room. Would you like to have your meals in your dining room taxed? The measure appears to have bipartisan support. It is scheduled for a vote out of a House committee this Thursday. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. The city of Arlington is hoping residents will continue taxing themselves to improve roads. For the last 10 years, Arlington residents have been paying a 0.2% sales tax to a transportation benefit district. But the tax is expiring and plenty of the city's roads still need work. So city leaders are asking voters to extend it for another 10 years. But which roads would get fixed if that extension is approved? Public Works Director Jim Kelly. The city selects roads that are the worst. The worst roads get paved and resurfaced first. According to the Everett Herald, voters approved the tax last time with over 64% voting in favor of it. Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. Looking ahead in our next segment, baby bonds and school lunch changes. I'm Mark Christopher as we continue now recapping the top stories of the week of February 11th. Washington State Ferries gets almost $5 million to help electrify the Teal clinton Ferry Route. Eric Heinz here to share on the Federal Transit Administration Grant. The grant is for construction of a charging station on the Clinton side of the Muckleteal to Clinton route to serve two plug-in hybrid electric ferries. Washington State Ferries says the route is expected to get the Olympic-class MV Wishka, the state's first new hybrid electric ferry, in 2027. The Everett Herald reports the total cost of the charging station is estimated at $20 million, with the state picking up the balance. The state's goal is a fleet of 26 vessels, 22 of which would be hybrid electric vessels by 2040. Eric Eintz, North Northwest News Radio. You're listening to Northwest News this week. We're covering the top stories for the week ending February 11th. And as we continue now for the stories of the past week, government red tape appears to be slowing the licensing process that would feed the mental health crisis here in our state. John Libertini. The licensing for psychologists in waiting is taking months, even years. It's as bad as I've ever seen it. Too long, says Dr. Samantha Slaughter with the Washington State Psychological Association. They're waiting for permission to take the exam so they can get their license and get on with their lives and be able to help the people that they know so desperately need treatment. Staffing shortages, technical glitches, and a suddenly confusing licensing process have plagued the examining board of psychology. Months to get back to applicants about what the issue was and then not being clear about what the issue was with their application. It's things like that that have really caused a huge backlog. Those delays have hurt men, women, and children with psychological problems. Some have been on waiting lists for up to two years. Right now, as many as 400 people are waiting on licenses, psychologists that could increase the workforce by 11%. The state is working on the problem. John Libertini, Northwest News Radio. Washington's Attorney General firing back at a public records lawsuit targeting members of the state legislature. Bob Ferguson's remarks say lawmakers are immune to certain demands for documents. The written Remarks from A.G. Ferguson are in response to a lawsuit filed against state legislators last month. Ferguson writes, the state constitution renders the defendants immune from being required to produce certain records. The lawsuit filed by open government activist Arthur West seeks clarity on whether or not legislative privilege allows lawmakers to shield documents, including emails, from the state's Public Records Act. State Representative Lori Jenkins is a Tacoma Democrat. She says the existing law Law allows lawmakers to deliberate privately. Legislative privilege is an ex- exception from public records that's actually grounded in the Constitution, not in statute. In a statement to McClatchy News, the Washington Coalition for Open Government says it is disappointed in Ferguson's 
remarks, saying, quote, allowing legislators to withhold records at will is unsupported by Washington state's statutes, case law, and constitution. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. The school lunch menu is set to evolve over the next few years after the Biden administration announcing new standards for school meals this month. Laura Riley, in fact, had a story in the Washington Post and spoke about it with our own Taylor Van Sice. Laura, it's probably been a while since most of our listeners have been in a school cafeteria. For me, it was uh, 2011, 2012 when I did some student teaching. But the food was pretty bland in those days. How have things changed in the last decade and what new changes are coming? Well, there's been kind of a pendulum swing. So during the Obama administration, it was really Michelle Obama's mission to improve the nutrition of school meals. So by increasing whole grains, by limiting sodium, by scaling back on fat and and milks and and, and those kinds of things. And then during the Trump administration, a lot of that got rolled back. And during the pandemic, schools were really given a lot of flexibility because they all had supply chain issues. So it was just hard to get enough food in the door. So basically, schools were allowed to be more interpretive in terms of what they were actually serving students. But now this is kind of a, a, a new take. And the aim of it is really to address the surge in childhood obesity. Yeah, I was stunned to read in your report that there's no federal standard limiting how much sugar kids get in these lunches or or breakfasts in some cases, especially since childhood obesity is so high. Um, How bad is it right now in the U.S.? One in five children under 18 suffer from obesity. Um, And as we know, that that goes hand in hand with a host of other problems from diabetes to fatty liver disease, depression, sleep apnea, etc. You know, not to mention the kind of stigma associated with it and, you know, learning problems, etc. So it really is a scourge that that schools and the Biden administration are trying to get a handle on. I recall back even to maybe the George W. Bush administration, the conversation between childhood obesity and school lunches going hand in hand. Uh, In the years since then, have efforts been unsuccessful, not equitable, or, or, you know, what's what's new this time, I guess? What's going to make it worse work this time? Well, I think what's happened in the past is if you reduce the fat in something like a milk or a yogurt, often what people do to make it still appetizing to kids is to bump up that sugar level. So this will hopefully, in a kind of a stair-stepped approach, reduce that sodium, reduce that sugar, as well as kind of keep a lid on fat. And then really focus on the, you know, grain-based desserts and, uh, you know, other breads and pastas to move that towards a more whole grain approach. Sure. Well, we spoke not long ago about how high school lunch debts have gotten around the country. Is this going to impact that in a negative way? Making foods healthier sometimes means more money. Well, that's a big concern. So the School Nutrition Association said these new guidelines are unrealistic. They can't manage to get the healthy foods that adhere to current rules. And if you make them stricter, these school administrators say there's no way we're going to be able to get this food in the door. And then there's the big question on the other side of things, you know, will kids eat it? You know, if you keep making it healthier, that that was the agriculture secretary under Trump said, kids are not going to eat this stuff. You know, you keep making it healthier, you're going to just see more of it in the garbage, you're going to get lesser participation in the program overall. And we already have seen a little bit of that during the pandemic. We are down about 3 million participants in school breakfast and lunch. So there are certainly concerns in that arena, while other people say, oh, there are plenty of low-sugar, low-salt, low-fat 
food options on the market right now, and it's just a matter of finding the ones that kids will eat. They can find out much more about this new effort online at WashingtonPost.com from Laura Riley, including the latest uh, estimate on when this is going to be rolled out, the timeline for it all. WashingtonPost.com for Laura Riley. More of the stories we're helping you catch up on here for the week of February 11th, a bill that would create a baby bond fund moves ahead in Olympia. Democratic State Senator Yasmin Trudeau is the sponsor. She told the News Tribune she faced housing insecurity as a child, even took a three-year break during college to help her family. She suggests children born into poverty have access to the Washington Future Fund. With $4,000 for each child set aside, those funds would grow over time and would be available for eligible claimants from age 18 to 35 to use for post-secondary education, the purchase of a home, or starting a business in Washington. To make sure that every kid has a chance at asset building, that has a chance to close the gap between where they started and where they want to go. This program is projected to cost about $150 million a year. Trudeau said it does not yet have a dedicated funding source. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Carlene. Life-saving insulin could be less expensive for families with diabetic kids. This is under a new bill making the rounds at the state capitol. Details now from Ryan Harris. The state health care authority is already allowed to buy the opioid overdose drug Narcan in bulk to save money. So House Bill 1725 would allow it to buy insulin and enter into agreements to distribute it to people under 21 to make it less expensive. East Wenatchee City Councilman Matthew Hepner talked about going to Harborview with his daughter as she faced a ketoacidosis emergency. When your 10-year-old girl is strapped to a gurney with her little arms full of IVs, scared out of her mind, being medevac to children's, and she looks you straight in the eye and says, Daddy, am I going to die? That doesn't go away. Kate White Tudor with the Washington Association for Community Health suggested a drastic change to the bill. To make insulin free and available to children under 21 and figure out what the potential cost to the state might be for making that available. No one testified in opposition to the bill. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Some of the stories we'll get to minutes from now. Employers' random searches of your car while it's parked at the workplace. And also a look to restrictive returns of firearms and licenses. And right now, this story, Bankrate.com's 2023 True Cost of Auto Insurance Report comes out. Seattle Metro Area ranked second on that list. And if you wonder what this means, Northwest News Radio's Tom Hutler. Kate, this is uh, good news for Seattle area drivers. Give us a look at the numbers here, which metro area is uh, even less expensive than Seattle. But we're number two, right? Yeah, you're number two. And in this case, a lower rank is a better rank. It means that you spend less of a percentage of the average income in that area on full coverage car insurance. So the only metro area that beat out Seattle was Boston. Uh, drivers in Seattle spend an average of about 1.4% on a full coverage car insurance policy compared to their average annual income. Drivers in Boston, it drops down to about 1.32%, so not a huge difference. And the cost of Seattle drivers uh, had the fifth biggest decrease, I understand. Yes. Yeah, from 2022 to 2023, rates dropped from 14.26 on average per year down to 13.61, about a 4.5% decrease. Now, a lot of things can impact these uh, rates. Adding a teen driver, for instance, that's going to jack things up pretty considerably, right? Yes, that is across the various metros and all 50 states that we looked at. Adding a teen driver is generally the biggest impact on full coverage car insurance rates. 
in Seattle, it adds almost $2,000 a year to add a teen driver to a full coverage policy. So if you know that's coming, definitely bear in mind that that is probably going to have a significant impact on your rates and budget accordingly. Another impact on your rates is another good reason to stay within the speed limit, it looks like. Absolutely. Any kind of moving violation, definitely speeding tickets, at-fault accidents, DUI convictions, all are huge impacts on your car insurance premium. The safer you can drive, the lower you're going to keep your rate in the long run. Inflation has shown signs of slowing, but do you think the rates are going to continue to rise next year or this year? We do. Yeah, we do, at least for part of 2023. And that's because car insurance rates are a bit reactionary. So these companies see that claims are increasing in value due to inflation, and they will they uh, request an approval for a rate increase from their state's Department of Insurance. And that takes a little time to sort of trickle through, get that approval, and then make the rate changes. So even though we've seen inflation cooling down the last few months, we do think rates are going to continue to rise at least for a little bit while those companies sort of catch up to what happened in 2022. Kate, thanks for your uh, update on the report. We appreciate you being with us. Kate DeVetter from Bankrate.com and Seattle Drivers. Enjoy those low rates while you can. Democratic Congressman Rick Larson from Whatcom County expected the president to focus on the economy, and he was not disappointed. I was very excited for the president to uh, kind of review the progress that we've made coming out of COVID with 12 million jobs created, lowest unemployment in 50 years. But that narrative leaves out certain realities. Gas prices that are that are still stubbornly high. Says Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Republican representative from Spokane. This administration has spent recklessly trillions of dollars. Debt is at a $31 trillion high. Larson again. I love the part about jobs being created by investing in the infrastructure. And McMorris-Rogers. Before COVID, our economy was booming. We had record jobs being created. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher, and you're listening to Northwest News This Week for the stories we covered for the week ending February 11th. As we continue, congressional Democrats from our state say President Joe Biden's State of the Union address this past week successfully highlighted his administration's steps toward economic recovery. Republicans say the speech did not tell the whole story. Democratic Congressman Rick Larson from Whatcom County expected the president to focus on the economy, and he was not disappointed. I was very excited for the president to uh, kind of review the progress that we've made coming out of COVID with 12 million jobs created, lowest unemployment in 50 years. But that narrative leaves out certain realities. Gas prices that are that are still stubbornly high. Says Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Republican representative from Spokane. This administration has spent recklessly trillions of dollars. Debt is at a $31 trillion high. Larson again. I love the part about jobs being created by investing in the infrastructure. And McMorris-Rogers. Before COVID, our economy was booming. We had record jobs being created. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. We talk a lot about gun violence here in Washington, but the state legislature considering a bill that would restrict the return of firearms and licenses. There are many examples, but the breakup of Joe Joseph and her husband might serve as a cautionary tale. Without notice to me, he was permitted the restoration of his 24 firearms. That was 2011. A year earlier, she told this House committee there'd been domestic violence. Within months of the return of these guns, he beat and then shot me at close range with his 45 
25 caliber pistol. Tighter gun controls under circumstances like that are at the heart of House Bill 1562. Prime sponsor, Milan Tai. The law needs to include the type of crimes that present heightened risk. Depending on the crime, gun rights could be stripped for years. Melody Simley is with Real Justice Washington. People who are legally looking to restore their gun rights are not the people committing crime. The bill is complex and lawmakers are still vetting the details. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. As we help you catch up to the stories of the past week, we had this one threatening someone with revenge porn could soon carry harsher penalties. It's under a bill which has cleared the state house. But in the case of what's called sexploitation, many of the perpetrators are overseas and cannot be held accountable. Carlene Johnson looked at this here and has a message to parents from law enforcement. The predators use all types of platforms to find victims, Snapchat or even online video games. If the platform has direct messages, Messaging, the predator has an avenue. Most often, it's young, teenaged boys. That fake account, that suspect account, gets these um, teenagers to send them, you know, explicit videos or photographs. Corporal Nick Briggs with Spokane Police tells KXLY the criminal then demands money, threatening to post the intimate images. Briggs says parents need to make sure they're talking to their kids about how dangerous it can be to send anyone intimate images. Having that dialogue with, you know, between parents and children, so that they know what predatory behavior is. A recent survey shows 40% of children remove privacy settings so they can attract more friends and followers. And that allows predators to see your child and attempt to connect, eventually soliciting those images. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Employers' random searches of your car while it's parked at your workplace would be prohibited by a bill under consideration at the state house. Here's Ryan Harris. House Bill 1491 would only allow for company searches of your private vehicle on their property if there's probable cause for concern about an immediate safety threat and would block companies from making you waive that privacy right as a condition of employment. Pulp and Paper Workers Union member Bill Sauters worked at the same mill where his stepfather worked for 40 years. Sauters says they lived in a remote area, so his mom had his stepdad pick up groceries, which included a bottle of wine found by security guards during a random search. He was reprimanded. He was a 40-year employee, had a perfect record. Now it was, if you make one more mistake, you're going to lose your job. It's scary. The only objection to the bill came from the Department of Labor and Industries, which says the bill lacks both the definition of probable cause and retaliation protections for workers who file an LNI complaint. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Another major story of the past week here that we'll get to in a matter of minutes. The search for survivors continuing after that quake in Syria and Turkey. And, of course, relatives right here in the Northwest trying to get some kind of Word. We'll give you the update. And we have this story now. The U.S. Education Department might be in danger of missing the October 1st deadline for launching a redesign of what's called the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. Student advocates say that could be a big problem. Danielle Douglas Gabriel covered it for the Washington Post, and we went to get some answers. Danielle, this is more commonly known to folks as FAFSA. The first question is, what's what's the holdup? Well, uh, there are an exceedingly number of changes coming to this form, and this is coming out of two separate pieces of legislation that Congress passed, one back in 2019, the other back in 2020, to really simplify the form, reduce the number of questions from like 103 down to 36, make it easier for students who are homeless to be able to apply for aid, to make it easier for students who work to have some of that money shielded from the calculation so they can receive more federal financial aid. Now, all those moving parts, uh, as they are coming together, have, according to the Department of Education at least, have been difficult for them to implement on time. Now, they're not saying that it's a 
done deal that they're not going to make this deadline. But it is in question whether they can do it by October 1st. It is entirely possible it could happen a month later or two months later. The trouble here is that there are a lot of states that have used the FAFSA in order to dole out state aid, and they have early deadlines. And so pushing this time back for the FAFSA would mean students have less time to apply for state aid and also would make it more difficult for them to have a clear picture of what their financial aid would be as they're trying to decide where to enroll. So any delay here would not only impact students, but I understand from your reporting, schools as well would be impacted. Oh, definitely. Uh, Colleges and universities have set deadlines and timelines for when they start to package award letters, when they start to give estimates of what students can expect to pay, even things called a net price calculator, whereby you can put in how much money your parents earn and get a general estimate of how much you would pay based upon their earnings. All of that is determined by some of the formula of the FAFSA. So if there's a delay in making these changes and finalizing it, that could hinder schools from being able to get that information out the door faster. Anything that could be done in terms of adjustments to ease that situation if that deadline is in fact missed? Well, certainly a lot of advocates are asking the department if they can staff up or redirect people to this assignment to make sure that it gets done faster. The department is trying to assure people that it is not, uh, it is working as hard as it possibly can to get this done in a timely fashion. And they're still aiming for that October 1st deadline. If it is missed, certainly it is possible that states may um, roll back their deadlines in in accordance just to, to be mindful of what parents and, and children are going through in, in apply for financial aid. But it's not, you know, again, it's not a definitive done deal mm-hmm. at this stage. But it is concerning that we are in February and the department can't give a confirmation as to whether they're going to make this deadline. The clock is ticking. All right, Danielle, thanks for your reporting. You can read Danielle's entire article at WashingtonPost.com. That's Danielle Douglas-Gabriel. Northwest News this week, a way for you to catch up each week of the top stories that we feel matter most here living in the Puget Sound. We're helping you right now catch up to the stories ending for the week of February 11th. Don't go away. We've got more just ahead. Welcome back. As the search for survivors continues in Syria and Turkey all during the past week, after a couple of massive earthquakes, people all over the world still awaiting word about the conditions of friends and relatives. Rezvan Mohammadi says she'll never forget Monday morning. When I wake, woke up in the morning, I heard a lot of, I received a lot of messages from my friends that they're worried about their family member in Turkey. From, they are from Syria, they're Afghan or Iranian. They're really worried. Then she finally heard from someone in the disaster zone. I heard from my sister-in-law that a lot of buildings like Uh, The Spokane woman tells KREM-TV she spent several years in the region with World Relief. She made a lot of friends while there. I feel really bad that it's maybe something happened to them that they cannot answer me because when I send messages to them, they always like answer me very quick. And it's really hard to... I, I even don't want to think about that maybe something happened to Rezvan worries because she hasn't heard from a lot of friends, but also because she's actually been there during an earthquake and knows how fragile some of that infrastructure could actually be. I really have ha- had a very, very bad experience of earthquake because me and my family members lived in tents for three months. All she can do now is hope and pray. 
It's cold there, and so many now don't have homes. Her phone will stay in her hands as she and so many others wait for any sign that loved ones actually survived. When you don't have, like, heating machines, it's really hard. You cannot imagine. And now I feel very, very bad for the people of Turkey. Yes, I'm not from Turkey, but... Uh, it's like my because I didn't see my country and it's like my home country and I feel very bad for my people I can say my people Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio A new report from Disability Rights Washington shows there were more than 24,000 incidents of restraint or isolation used on students in the 2019-2020 school year. Now, the vast majority of those were students with special needs. Washington law bars schools from restraining or isolating students unless there is an imminent likelihood of serious harm. But the report suggests the practice has no academic or therapeutic benefit. Public school employees of Washington told lawmakers they share concerns about the numbers, but they want paraeducators and other staff who deal with students who can be combative or violent to have clear options if they can't restrain or isolate a student. To ensure that all classified instructional staff receive the comprehensive and meaningful professional development they need before making the critical changes that are needed in our schools. The Seattle Times reports supporters of the bill say that official figures are likely much higher as dozens of schools failed to submit data in the state's most recent collection. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Carlene. You can't believe everything you read on your smartphone. Lawmakers say that's the message teachers should be passing along to school kids in new media literacy courses. Krista Murphy with the State Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction describes media literacy as a critical skill in more ways than one. The amount of time spent on phones and other electronic devices drives the need to ensure students can recognize um, how to evaluate information for safety and accuracy. Gonzaga University professor John Caputo launched the Center for Media Literacy, training teachers in the field. Teachers and parents start to learn pretty quickly that their kids are shaped by media messages and we have to find a way to present alternative critical thinking. Senate Bill 5626 would establish statewide programs to enable students to screen the media they consume for objectivity and truthfulness to create what sponsors call good digital citizens. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. State lawmakers considering the establishment of a domestic violent extremism Commission. House Bill 1333 would create the commission, charged with investigating groups like the KKK and the Proud Boys. The measure is sponsored by Democrat Bill Ramos. It's not a law. It's not trying to make anything illegal. It is trying to say how can we deal with it in the long term to make our society and our community safer for every one of us. The hope is to prevent domestic extremism and violence before it happens. At the bill's first hearing last month, Republican Peter Abarno didn't voice any opposition, but wanted to make sure the commission investigates left-wing groups such as Antifa as well. If the bill passes, Washington would be the first state to establish a commission to investigate domestic violent extremism. Jeff Pogelin, Northwest News Radio. It's blood poisoning, hard to detect in the body, but we have an update from the University of Washington and research how possibly they can find it much sooner. And let's continue here with this story. A Snohomish County man accused of having ties with a hate group now facing gun charges. Police say storage units belonging to 27-year-old Josiah Degenstein of Lake Stevens was used to keep multiple weapons, including five rifles, bulletproof vest, and ammunition. 
His probation officer tells the Everett Herald he's a member of the hate group Northwest Crime Family and has two previous convictions for unlawful firearm possession. Police have been looking for him since September after they say suspicious activity was seen near the storage units in Granite Falls, but he was not arrested until late December. He's charged with two counts of unlawful firearm possession and held on $150,000 bail. Eric Heintz, Northwest News Radio. You're in tune to Northwest News this week for the week ending February 11th as a recap of the top stories from all of our staff so you have a way to catch up. Sepsis is a blood poisoning from infection in the body and in many cases it can be hard to catch before it's too late. Marina Rockinger explains how research now from the University of Washington may find it sooner. By the time sepsis, a life-threatening illness, is discovered in the body, it can be challenging for healthcare professionals to squash it. Worldwide, there are about 40 million sepsis cases a year with just over 10 percent of those resulting in death. In fact, sepsis is the most common cause of death among hospitalized patients in the U.S. Now, researchers from the University of Washington find if they keep an electronic medical record of a trauma patient's symptoms, the computer can corral the data in real time. UW physician Dr. Grant O'Keefe is part of the study. There are a number of changes that we've detected that are happening earlier than than we would otherwise suspect and start the process of making the diagnosis. Dr. O'Keefe tells me an automated system will help clinicians with early detection of sepsis. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. St. Joseph Medical Center in Tacoma is launching a new home health care program. Virginia Mason Franciscan Health, which runs the hospital, has partnered with Nashville-based Contessa for the service. The idea is to ease overcrowding in the ER by treating some patients at home. The News Tribune reports certain Medicare patients that are transported back to home get a virtual and in-person care team, including a physician, nurse, and care coordinator. The hospital says the service is ideal for acute conditions such as COVID, RSV, congestive heart failure, and urinary tract infections. They add they are looking to expand locations and open up the program to patients with other health plans. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. On the past week, we did get some clearing in the afternoon, rather comfy enough to go sit outside to eat a lunch. Outdoor curbside dining in Seattle will become a recurring seasonal tradition if restaurant owners want it. The announcement from the Seattle Department of Transportation says the COVID-era phenomenon known as streeteries will become permanent under a program that allows restaurants to renew their permits every April through October. It's a program Steve Hooper has long advocated for. It's been wildly popular with residents, operators, and uh, ensures vibrancy within our city uh, and our neighborhoods. Hooper is president of the Seattle Restaurant Alliance. Streeteries are not universally popular. In Ballard, critics lately have been arguing the outdoor dining tents are not a good look for the neighborhood's historical district. SDOT Director Greg Spots disagrees. In a statement announcing the new policy, he says, streeteries make city streetscapes more vibrant, attractive, and fun. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. And now for one of the big maritime stories of the week, and only right where we live to share this one with you. An Everett company is out with a video documenting its dives to the world's best-known shipwreck. Now available on YouTube, Titan, a viewport to Titanic, is a 20-minute video chronicling Ocean Gate Expedition's dives in their Titan submersible to study the quickly deteriorating luxury liner. GeekWire reports Ocean Gate's film highlights intriguing artifacts, including chandeliers, a crane that once lowered lifeboats, and parts of the steering mechanism. The company will continue to study and document the wreck's deterioration during expeditions this May and June. 
Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. And there, you have a good sense of what happened and how busy it was here at Northwest News this past week as we help you catch up with the top stories here for the week ending February 11th. Northwest News this week, it's heard every week right here on radio at Northwest News Radio AM 1000, FM 97.7, also at 101.5 HD Channel 2. And as I mention often, it originated as a podcast. We still provide that. For your listening convenience, you'll find it at nwnewsradio.com. And you'll find others like Politicast, LifeBeat, and Puget Sound Now. And a reminder, if you enjoy this program as a podcast, we hope you'll take a moment to share a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for doing that. Northwest News This Week, produced by Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor, Painter Webb. I'm Mark Christopher. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.